Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. There are unseen and often unrecognised impulses that move us all. Some of those desires and motivations drive the characters we find in Alec Patrich's collection of short stories, The Butcher Bird Stories. So, Alec, welcome back to 3CR. Great to be here. You've, you've become a regular. I know. It's what, four well, times now? It's, it's times? The, your fourth visit, sure. my fourth like interview year. with you. I think all but one book. Um, that I've interviewed you about. Um, you've won the Miles Franklin in that time. Nothing much, really, in the background there. You've virtually produced something every year. Now, I'm just wondering how you see the evolution of what's happened over that time and over the course of the interviews I've had sure. with you. In ter- I don't think in terms of um, evolution, really. I don't know if anyone can ever use that term on themselves. Um, more, you know, um, momentum. You know, when once you get that ball rolling, especially if it takes you a long time. I mean, it seems like I'm producing a lot, but actually, it took me a long time to get started. You know, mm. um, so once you get started, you just want to keep on going. But in terms of your development as a writer, mm-hmm. has anything changed or developed? Or yeah, I suppose um, you hope that you can feel yourself um, getting, you know, deeper and deeper into your own soul, for want of a better word. You know, like. Um, when you start out writing, you you look at these great heroes of, that you that you might find find along the way, and you wonder how do they do that? You know, how do they how do they write something like that? And occasionally, when you're lucky and you're really and, and you're working well, you feel that th- come through you as well, and you're surprised by that wonderful expression or that wonderful idea. So, but one of the stories here entitled "Punctuated Air" is almost autobiographical, except. It isn't, but you go into that whole notion of being a writer. It's a strange circumstance when you devote yourself to a language that does not belong to your parents, because a writer does not simply use the language. A writer becomes the language. There's a devotion to a literary legacy. So you're contributing to Australia's literary legacy in that regard. Well, and Australia's contributed to to my sense of myself, you know, so then that there's that way in which you've been influenced and um, want to express that influence and that, you know, it's, to, for me, like, what was interesting as a sort of progression, you asked me about evolution. I felt like with Black Rock, White City, that was very much a, an immigrant experience. Um, but I think that with Butcher Bird Stories, I think it's a far more Australian collection of stories. It's but not, you, you do touch on that immigrant past yeah, sure. in punctuated air. Well, that's, that's a part of my identity. But with um, I really like locked into that with Black Rock, White City. I was really interested in that immigrant experience, the refugee experience, and that those, mul- those various narratives that were weaving in through Australian culture. And with Butcher Bird Stories... It was it was a slightly different sort of sense of that Australian identity. But that's so important in mm-hmm. Australia's identity that needs to be articulated. Sure. I suppose for me, you know, I see some um, writers that have write, written, you know, um, in that vein, and then they just sort of get locked into it, you know, like whether it be, you know, because uh, you've got Indigenous, you know, history and 
And then that becomes the only thing you can write. Or if you've got a particular kind of ethnic sort of background or, you know, to me, there's a sort of sense of needing to accept those identity elements, but also to transcend them and to understand that you're part of Australian culture more broadly as well. Well, there's also a sense of transcendence in some of the imagery you use in that story. I mean, you've got the Eastern European Mm -hmm. image, but also then... You're going as far as the sea of tranquility in the story. Yeah. So it's it's global or or astral in in some ways, as well as the smaller picture too, the yeah. scale of that, it. That perspective from the sea of tranquility was um, a significant element of that story. But I don't know if people will understand that over the radio. Oh well, you know, just just look up tonight at the stars and the moon. Yeah. But that that notion comes through in quite a number of stories mm-hmm. and that perspective on life and uh, the scale of us in, sure. within that that much I think broader. that's why I think Artie is such a um, compelling and, um, you know, that it's, it's a perspective. It draws you into a particular world and then you look back at yourself and your own experience and who you are and everything's transformed, you know. So that perspective is why we, I think, get into art in the first place, is to find a different perspective on ourselves, our experience, and for it to become something deeper and broader and part of the world and not just atomized little elements that drift, drift out into the dust. Well, even still on that, on that story um, of Punctuated Air, as a writer, I wonder about those of us who have been removed from our places of birth who leave language, history and ancestry to begin anew somewhere else. We become proud owners of words inherited from parents that are not our own. Our first sentences are composed within a literary history that has given us so few pages we barely exist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've borrowued from other cultures, other languages, other your other past. You've had to leave things behind and f- almost form a new language understanding um it yeah it's quite remarkable that that perspective but you've also got an australian voice here uh you capture the sense of australia in the opening of butcher bird the girl asks where the shadows have gone her father pulls her along with without answering the question how to explain the ferocity above and the way it kills shade everywhere except directly below her feet It bleaches the concrete footpath they are walking along, ricochets in billions of points off off the whitewashed walls and blazes from metal and glass. Sorry, he says, I didn't know how far it was. But this story becomes something above the forces and and looks at some of the impulses that are driving us. So there's the landscape that you're capturing and that places it in Australia. But then there are forces here... uh, the child, well, there's a sleeplessness about the character, the daughter having nightmares, sleepwalkers are mentioned, even the behaviour of magpies. You seem to be touching on the forces that compel and drive us a lot. Yeah. Uh, I, that's definitely something I'm really fascinated by, is the ways in which our experiences are generated beyond ourselves. And it, it almost, it's almost as though the human personality is a kind of fuse for the world to enact some kind of explosion, some kind of um, action, some kind of movement, some kind of feeling, some kind of song. And, you know, I had that experience actually in Noosa where I was sitting in a gazebo with my ki- with my kids, um, although I, I 
I, it's one child in that gazebo in the story. My my daughter always claims that character, my eldest daughter. Um, but we were sitting there literally, and I was listening to this bird sing. And, you know, butcher bird, though, appearing all around Australia, doesn't really appear very much in Victoria. Most of the people I've asked in Victoria have never heard of a butcher bird. They think it's an invented thing, you know, like butcher bird, you know. But no, actually, and it's a beautiful bird, but I'd never really encountered it. And I heard it singing. And then when I heard it singing, it went to a kind of whole new level. It was almost as though listening to a musician and hearing that musician reach a kind of crescendo, a virtuoso musician. And I was just stunned by the beauty of this bird singing. I mean, it's a when, when you when, once you know about it, you know it's a fairly famous songbird. Um, and then I was also struck when I did a bit more research because, you know, the experience sort of lodges with you. And then I did a bit more re- research and I found out that the magpie and the butch- butcher bird are two very, very similar birds. And while magpies can also sing well, I think the butcher bird um, is kind of almost an offshoot of that. And in the story, I'm contrasting these two different kinds of birds that are from the same kind of family. The one that sings... But the and then the one that's more of a kind of scavenger or, you know, that kind of thing. The annoying magpie. Yeah. But there's something, some sort of force compelling them and the the creatures, sure. but as well as people. I mean, you've got one Bengal monkey which mm-hmm. speaks to this, and it's almost like a divine inspiration of sorts. I mean, you've got Clara at her engagement party to to Martin, but uh, she has to contain Lucas, which who was her former partner, because Lucas is full of this exuberant spontaneity, which is almost a life force in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, something that they also shared in their in their younger years as well, and that for Clara is is a thing of the past. She's not looking to tap that particular vein of energy again, you know. She's looking to settle down. She's pregnant. She wants to have a baby. She wants to move on with that life. And Lucas is really a representative of chaotic force. But it's a creative force as well. Sure. Which I think... That's the fear that people have of creativity is that it's chaos also. And it is. It's destabilizing too. You know, the sort of notion that art is liberating and therapeutic or whatever else, that, that can be true. But art can also be destructive and it can also uh, bring in turbulence, you know. You know that's true as well when you just watch a, a film, let's say, that really hits hard for some reason. Suddenly your whole world feels changed. You're not sure about your relationship anymore. You know, that can happen just with that kind of thing, let alone with actual life experiences that we've had. Like they were that kind of couple where they they set out onto the world stage as writers. They were going to explore themselves. They were going to explore, you know, the world. And he kept on going with that. And she decided to come back to Australia. And But you come to a sort of conclusion about a primal force there. Sure. Uh, which I think, well, the listener can read it for themselves. Hopefully they will. But you suggest that, you know, that primal force has that capacity to create Mm. Um, which is is remarkable. Another driving factor, you've got, um, and I've forgotten, oh, a vulture is the name of the story. You've got a swimmer doing laps in a pool and he sees a thumb. But in many ways, his driving force is his own thoughts and ideas, a, a revulsion about who could have a thumb there or, hang on, is it a practical joke? But it, it's also these, um, f- we sway between that revulsion and then 
uh, an acceptance or a rationalisation, and so this this whole thought process mm. while he's swimming. Yeah, well, that that that's a that uh, that idea for that particular story really for me was an interesting. It, was, it almost felt like a Greek myth, you know, like Sisyphus or something like that, where the man's rolling a a boulder up a hill and every day it rolls back down. Well, I had this sort of idea that this man is swimming up and down a pool endlessly, and he is looking down at his own thumb at the bottom of the pool, and he just keeps on swimming. Unable to accept the fact, the reality of it. Well, you've just given away the ending of the story, which I didn't want to do. <laughs> no, that's fine. Look, no, I, I think that he, his, his attempt to evade the truth of it is not the actual truth of the story. The truth of the story is that he did lose his thumb and that he's creating excuses or reasons or that he's... If it's somebody's thumb, then there's that shock and horror, and we almost yeah. want to avoid it. If it's a practical joke, yeah. we want yeah. to get retribution. And you know, the horrifying thing, David, is that avulsion does happen. Mm. You know, people do actually like lose a finger or even an arm sometimes quite quite suddenly, and and it doesn't generate as much pain as you would think, especially if you're distracted by water or whatever else. You can't. You it's. It's a horrifying possibility, but it can actually happen. I, um, you know, so that was like uh, an interesting little idea to sort of explore. But um, yeah, no, it's definitely his thumb, and by the end of it, he, he he's aware that. Well, he becomes aware finally after mm-hmm. he's you know gets out of the pool, so to speak. But you've also got stories, and we're going to have to finish very very quickly. Um, HB, very short story. Mm-hmm. Uh, a child is given a pencil. But it's almost a story in what is not told because, um, mm. you know, we can, as the reader has to sort of interpret the images around this child who's the, and the experience, the innocence of him, but so much going on around him. Yeah, yeah. I, just, uh, we, I think we all have these catalytic moments in our lives where something happens and then we don't th- feel it at the, at the time that it's happening often. It's just... Oh, weird little thing that happened, you know. But we find that maybe later on in life that there was a massive impact, um, that we were somehow pierced to the very soul by something that we experienced. And that was a moment for me, actually, in reality, you know, meeting a woman who'd lost her child and I was as old as her child was and that connection that I had with her just very briefly at her house. We're unfortunately going to have to finish there, Alec. We could keep going. It's a collection of short stories called The Butcher Bird Stories. Alec Patrich is the author, and it's from Transit Lounge. Thank you, David. Jan. Well, thank you, and I'm welcoming back to Publish or Not, Ilka Tamke. Thank you, Ilka, for returning. And nice to be here. feeling in a little bit more story for me, because mm-hmm. the last time I chatted with you, it was a book called Skin, and now we have Song Woman. Mm-hmm. The same woman, it takes us through these two books and Mm. what a responsibility she has (laughs) that's right yeah so we better find out just where the story set and when so this story is set um mostly in iron age wales although it wasn't known as wales at the time so just in the year around 47 a.d um about four years into the Roman invasion, as Rome is trying to push forward into the recalcitrant Western territories. The Eastern territories have capitulated um, more willingly, um, but there's a fair bit of resistance in the West, and my character is uh, wanting to align herself with that. 
Right, yes, these tribes in the south and eastern parts of Albion, they've submitted to the Roman rule. They're, as you say, lured by the false prize of a peaceful aliens. Mm. What happened to the tribes that didn't, though? What were they doing? Well, uh, all kinds of all kinds of different things. Um, mostly working really hard to uh, stem the encroaching mm. invasion. Um, dealing with, uh, I mean, the, the tribes of ancient Britain were quite disparate historically. And what would Rome do to these tribes? Well, brutalise them. Yes, brutalise them quite uh, quite staggeringly. Um, as part of the process of colonisation, desecrate oh. uh, their sacred um, artefacts, their sacred well groves. It was predominantly um, groves and, and spaces within the natural world, within the wild world that the people at this time would worship within. And um, that was where the Romans knew to target for the most um, sort of powerful destabilisation of that culture. Well, in your first book, Skin, we were introduced to Aelia. She had fled from her village and she was the sole survivor after Mm. everybody was wiped out. She comes out of the forest after a year. Mm. So what powers does she have? Well, I think um, I begin the book with her... uh, living wild as i as i as i call it um so she has that very deep connection that very deep alignment to the land um which is something that i explore what what that actually is and what the nature of that is throughout the book um so she has that very deep commitment to wanting to continue to fight um for the sovereignty of this land for the voice of the land but she she's an ambivalent would-be leader. She's a sort of wounded or, or um, fragmented leader because she carries a lot of guilt. So she's found her way to Western Albion. Mm. So uh, this area is an unclaimed blood by Rome. So who leads the tribe? So this is, um, I call him Caradog, which is his Welsh name, but um, people are more likely to know him as Caraticus. That's the, the Romanized version of his name. Some people might know that from a Rolf Harris song. <laughs> Um, but yes. um, yeah, the court of King Caraticus. Um, but just passing by. Yes. that's right. But he is actually um, a historical figure that is accounted for in the Roman record, um, and was a resistance fighter. Uh, he led a where his sister was a queen over in the eastern tribes, and she had submitted her tribe to the Roman legion. A strategic capitulation, yeah. So, um, I mean, she's not uh, documented with certainty as his sister, but that um, it's said that there is, that there was or there may have been um, a family tie or a clan tie between them, which I interpreted as perhaps. Um, a sister by fosterage and and a cousin by blood, mm. so that's the relationship that I that I give them. It was really interesting to hear their debates together about uh, you know citizenship over sovereignty mm. and uh, and whether it was bondage and mm. just you know what what Rome can bring and mm. oh, that was so that's right. So she she felt that um, the surest pathway to retaining her power as tribal leader was to align with Rome to operate as a client queen where she effectively um, would enforce Roman law and pay Roman taxes but would retain um, you know retain some degree of control over her tribe lands and that was her decision uh, 
in terms of her navigating um, what power may or may not be available to her. But of course, um, those who fought for the resistance thought that was a you know monumental sellout. She talks about having freedom, mm. know, and um, you know, even Alia, our, our character that we follow through all of this, mm. she had absolutely no freedom in her birthright. Mm. You know, she didn't have a skin. She, That's right. And so, you know, it's, it, with becoming a citizen of Rome, yeah, at least she she had other virtues. That's right. So, so it's it, interesting, that, you know, all those little mm. Mm. just that that idea too that um, I think the Roman Empire really. Um, really, really brought, which was that citizenship did not have to be tied to physical place. Mm. And that for most of the ancient world was a radical notion um, that you could potentially be aligned to a sort of to a state that wasn't um, firmly embedded in the place that you lived in. Um, and, And once you had let go of that association, well, then you could effectively kind of um, command the entire world, colonise the world. Look, I think that was shown beautifully in uh, the whole thing about measurement. Measurement was one of the most sacred branches of journey craft, Mm. being aligned to the shape of all things. Mm. Well, that's then. Mm. Rome build that straight road. <laughs> Look, it's so interesting. Um, I was just reading about this this morning, actually. I was going back to one of my research texts. Um, and it's a very little-known area of ancient British archaeology, but there is more and more evidence that um, townships, roadways, um, significant places of worship are placed along the, the bearings of the solstice, so aligned to the angles of the solstice. So there's this really deep um, cosmological engagement in the whole mapping of place that um, the ancient Britons uh, lived by. And Rome, of course, had much more sort of pragmatic concerns such as the fastest way to get you know, building materials from one place to another. So there's a bit of a difference between culture and infrastructure, yeah. even as there is today. <laughs> yeah. So um, Caradog wants to unite all the Western tribes to fight against the Romans. Mm. Why is it worth him having Alia with him? Well, because so um, most of the characters in this novel are historical, but Alia is a is an imagined character. So she is um, she's called a journey woman in the book. Uh, essentially, she's a female druid, um, and she's a very um, high ranking female druid. So for him, and, and as such, she represents. Um, the voice of the land or sort of speaks for the spirits of the land. So for him to align with her, for him to um, be sort of connected or, uh, to or supported by her really authenticates or validates his um, his his fight as the will of the land. But there's a problem about getting them, him get, marrying her. Yes, that's right, which is what do you mean that he's already married? Yes, he is. <laughs> that's right. So... Um, here is, I guess, the the kind of um, sort of more domestic layer mm. of, of the drama, um, the more sort of personal, psychological layers of the drama. But he's married to a very nice woman, Yerevan, yeah. who says, "Cradog is a man of many weathers. Marry him with my blessing, but do not love him." Mm. Oh, dear. Mm. 
<laughs> now, in uh, Caradog's court, there's also another journeyman called Pride. Mm. Uh, why would he be resistant to Alia having control? Now, you've given you've um, pronounced his name uh, in a way that I call him Prid. Oh, that, right. that's but Pride is not a is not a sort of entirely um, inappropriate way to say it. So he uh, he he was the. Um, the journeyman or the druid that was currently sort of acting as chief advisor to the to the um, to the, the organisers, you know, to the tribal leaders when um, my character arrived. So, what I was trying to explore in this second novel, particularly, was the the power struggles within this um, within this network as well, within this culture, um, and particularly how. Um, this sort of really um, beautiful network of knowledge keepers that did exist, I believe, in Britain at that time, started to crumble. The integrity of this knowledge culture started to sort of collapse in on itself with the pressures of colonisation, of invasion. Um, And as the situation becomes more and more desperate, um, internal fighting commences and, and that's what we see. Well, not only internal fighting. One of the climaxes of the book comes when the tribe faces the Romans. Mm. Now, apparently this is based on history. Yes. So Caradog fought a final um, and decisive battle, having evaded the then-general scapula um, over a period of of years um, by really uh, hiding himself, fighting in stealth, really keeping to the to the sort of um, deep forests and mountains, they finally met um, in an epic battle that Tacitus um, recounts. But we don't know where it was. Um, And I'm one of the probably, you know, hundreds or thousands of people that tromped all over Britain trying to find it. Yeah, well, beautiful descriptions of Mm. just how... A quote from the book. The Romans had method and unity, but we fought with nobility, lustful and raw. We fought with defiance. We fought for our story. Mm. And the setting was just on this mountain and making the Romans go through a river and then Mm. climb using their hands so they couldn't use their weapons. Mm. It was a fabulous piece of exciting writing, I was going to say. Well, what we know from Tacitus is that there was a river, that there was a steep hill and that um, this particular feature in the landscape had been chosen for its um, strategic... um, you know, advantage. So um, I did find one of the places that is postulated as being possible. Um, I, I went to one of them, I went to a few of them, but this particular one in Wales really felt to me um, like it was it. So well, that's the one I, I chose. T- we're not going to tell you just how that fight went left, but there is one last quote. Alias is told. There is a horse at the gate. I will give you this night to escape. Then I must be seen to hunt you. Be sure you evade me. Mm. So we know she does get out, mm. but by whom and whatever. And I hope there's going to be a third book in this series. Mm. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, if a country can't defend, how can its culture stay intact and true? A young woman learned in spiritual ways helps to lead the tribes fighting against the Roman during the Iron Age in Wales. Exciting stuff, David. Sounds marvellous. It reminds me of about the Eagle of the Knights and all of those sorts of stories. About, mm. um, Rosemary Sutcliffe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. beautiful. So, 
Yeah, not a way. Well, that takes us out for another week. It's been action-packed. You know how you had lost thumbs? We had lost tongues. Oh, yes. Lots of privations in in ancient Rome. But that's all for us for this week, and we better make way for ruminations. Absolutely.